Good morning. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 17. As we continue our study of this first book of the Bible. Uh, This morning, we're going to look specifically at the covenant sign of circumcision. What is the meaning of the covenant sign? How does this Old Testament sign relate to the New Testament sign of baptism? And what are the implications uh, for our life uh, today? The title of the message, which will be the uh, point that I'm trying to get us to, uh, is the sign of God's promise makes a claim over the entirety of our life. Uh, read with me uh, Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, Covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And so Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, 
and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall be father to 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, as we read this account, we wonder what it has to do with us. But you have recorded it in your word for us. And so this morning we ask that your spirit would be present, that uh, what is true would be made clear to us. And from this account, we would come to know, to, to love, and to obey you better. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of Abraham uh, began back in Genesis 12, when God promised him a people and a land. He was 75 at the time. And God called him to leave his people, the life that he knew, to abandon his pagan religion and to become the man of God. Abraham believed God, and so Abraham obeyed God. He packed up all of his belongings. He gathered his flocks and his herds. He set out with his wife and his servants. And they all traveled over a thousand miles to the land that God had promised to give Abram. In Genesis 15, a few chapters later, God speaks to Abraham again. And he says, I am your shield and your great reward. And then God tells Abraham, look to the heavens and number the stars if you're able. So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham is this great example of justification in the Bible. He is saved through faith in the God of the Bible. In Genesis 16, it's been 11 years since God first promised him a covenant son, and he's 86. Time seems to be running out. And Dan preached on this uh, last week. Sarah had this great idea 
that she would send Hagar, her servant, into Abraham to be his wife, and she would bear a son. And this is how God's promise would come about. Now, I don't know what they were thinking. Perhaps uh, they're just thinking, well, we're going to help God. Or maybe they thought, well, maybe we didn't, maybe we're remembering it wrong. Maybe we misunderstood what God had said and how this would happen. So, so this is what we think is best. Whatever was in their mind, they took matters into their own hands because they didn't fully trust God and his word. Often we can struggle to trust God. We say we trust God, but when life is hard, it's, it's difficult to, to see and to believe in his goodness and his faithfulness to us. We want to trust him, but circumstances seem to communicate something different. When life is not going the way that we think it should, we question if God really cares for us. Dan referenced last week, Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and God will make your path straight. What if your child is diagnosed with cancer? Or you lose your job and the mortgage is due. Or maybe you think a friend has betrayed you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. It's far easier to say than to live out when life is often filled with disappointment and loss. But for the believer, God is always present, always working in every circumstance even when we can't see it or understand how God will bring good into our life. Abraham believed God, even in spite of what seemed impossible. And God justified him through his faith. But the God who justified Abraham also wanted to sanctify Abraham. God uses circumstances, even loss and disappointment, unmet expectations to grow us to know, love, and obey him more. As chapter 17 begins, God is showing Abraham that his greatest desire for him is relational. Verse 1, God tells Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. This is God's call to Abraham to live a life fully surrendered to God. But I left everything. I've traveled a thousand miles. What else can I give? What else can I surrender? But the episode of of Genesis 16, the episode with Hagar, shows us that Abraham still has something to learn about depending upon God. 
And so in Genesis 17, Abram is 99. Ishmael, the son of Hagar, and Abraham is 13. It's been 13 years of waiting after he had already waited 11 years. 24 years after God said he would give Abraham a son. He and Sarah are old, beyond childbearing years, and it seems impossible. And it even seems that in our text this morning that Abram has accepted the fact that his wife is too old to have children. When God repeats his promise that that Sarah will have a son, what what does Abraham say in verse 18? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He still thinks... This is the son of promise. But God corrects him by saying, I'm going to bless Ishmael on your account. But he is not the son of promise. And so God signals that by changing Sarai's name to Sarah. Both names mean princess, but it indicates a change of, of uh, stature. And Abram, which means exalted father, becomes Abraham, a father of multitudes. One author uh, described uh, what that possibly was like for him. As he met people, what's your name? Abraham. Oh, that's father of multitude, right? Yes. So how many kids do you have? None. Okay. God promised a people and a land, and that that promise of a son through whom a nation would come would be born to Sarah. The impossible has to be possible because God promised it. And God will keep his promises. And so, In our account this morning, God gives Abraham a seal of that promise, a a sign, circumcision. And God even equates the covenant sign with the covenant itself. In verse 10, he says, this is my covenant, which you will keep, you and your offspring, Every male shall be circumcised. Then verse 13, so shall my covenant be in your flesh. An everlasting covenant. Why does God say that? It's because circumcision is a pictorial of the whole of God's covenantal promises in their flesh. Circumcision is the promise of righteousness, of salvation for all who believe God and trust what he has revealed. Like Abraham, those who believe are counted as righteous. Through faith, the people of God are justified. And the cutting away of flesh in circumcision represents a cutting away of unrighteousness and sin. 
It represents a setting apart of God's people to live holy lives in obedience to God, to be cut off from the world, to be separate. Circumcision was this promise of justification and sanctification. But it was also a warning for those who did not believe. If you did not believe, then just as the flesh was cut off, so you would be cut off from God. You would be left alienated and separated and remain under the condemnation of God for your sin. Circumcision was a sign and a seal of righteousness found in God's covenant of grace as it was administered in the Old Testament. Think of uh, Romans 4, verses 11 and 12. It says this, Paul is speaking. He says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all those who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised on the outside, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Circumcision itself obviously could not save in the same way that baptism today does not save. It was not the reality of faith, but pointed to the promise of righteousness that God gives through faith in whom? Where does our faith reside in? Christ. It is Christ who saves. And so faith even in the Old Testament, though they did not know his name, was in Christ. In the Old Testament, Christ was present in in shadows and types. The sacrifices and the promises all pointed forward to Christ. And as a believer in the Old Testament embraced those promises, they were embracing Christ himself. Christ is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And there is salvation in no other name. Whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, the covenant promises to Abraham and later to Israel were all fulfilled in Christ. Abraham and Moses were not covenant of works, though sometimes we think that way. They are administrations of the one covenant of grace. Old Testament saints looked forward to Christ in promises and types. We look back. The salvation is the same. It's through Christ. Circumcision and later the Old Testament sacrificial system looked to Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. And so circumcision was an act of obedience, not to save, but as a response to being saved, a response to God's gracious call to relationship with himself. Circumcision is the Old Testament sign. In the New Testament, the sign of the covenant of grace has been been changed to baptism, which also looks beyond itself to justification in Christ. 
circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament are different signs, but they are seals of the same covenantal promises. Think of Colossians 2, verses 11 to 12. In Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, meaning his death, having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you also are raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul is equating dying and being raised with Christ as his circumcision and baptism. Both baptism and circumcisions are covenant signs that look to the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Like circumcision, baptism speaks both of salvation and judgment. Uh, 1 Peter 3 draws a, a parallel between baptism and the Old Testament flood. And the flood waters of Genesis 6 represent God's judgment against an unbelieving world. But that judgment against an unbelieving world was the means of Noah's salvation. Noah and his family, it says, were saved through or by the waters of judgment as they were by faith in God's ark of salvation. And so baptism not only declares faith for those who believe, but is a warning to those who don't believe. For the Christian, the waters of baptism signify that the blood of Christ has washed your sins completely away. But for those who don't have faith, they warn that the, the water judgment of God is coming. And it will wash you away. Baptism, God's promise of covenant faithfulness, is an assurance to those in faith that our sins are forgiven, that they've been washed by Christ, and that we are now clean. Think of Titus 3, verses 5 to 7. God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are heirs according to promise. We are Abraham's heirs along with Isaac. All those who trust in Christ have been grafted into Abraham's spiritual family. Paul tells us in Galatians 3 verse 29, and if you belong to Christ through faith, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. It's not just Isaac who is the son of promise. We are offsprings with whom God has made an eternal covenant. Verse 
And in our text this morning in Genesis 17, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That promise is not just a promise to ethnic Israel living in a piece of real estate in the Middle East. That is God's promise to us. As we think about that promise, we can't lose sight of the redemptive context of the entire Bible. God fulfilled his promise temporally to the nation of Israel who lived in the land of of milk and honey, Canaan. That was a true and a good fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, but it was provisional, meaning it pointed to something even better. God, God's promise, his ultimate design is to bring us back to Eden itself. Back to the garden paradise of God where we have full and complete fellowship with one another, with the creation and with God himself. In Hebrews 11, we're told that Abraham looked forward to a heavenly city whose design and builder is God himself. God is taking us back to the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And John describes this heavenly reality in which we hope in Revelation 22, verses 1 to 4. It says this, Then the angel showed me, this is John speaking, Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Isn't it interesting? The tree of life on either side. There's not just one in this heavenly reality. They're on both sides of the river. And every month they have their fruit. It's an overabundance of blessing that God is promising us. And it goes on, it says, The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. the covenant sign of circumcision looked forward to Christ's circumcision, his death on the cross. And the New Testament sign of baptism looks back and sees the blood spilled on the cross is what washes us clean. The eternal Son of God took on flesh And then he died on the cross to pay for sins and was raised on the third day. In garden terms, Jesus faced the flaming sword of judgment that barred entry to the tree of life. He faced the wrath 
require to access that tree. And he gives us access to it. It says in Revelation 2, we have access to the tree of life in the paradise of God. Not only does Jesus face the flaming sword of Genesis 3, Jesus is the smoldering pot and the flaming torch of Genesis 15. Do you remember uh, Pastor Kyle was preaching and and God is uh, affirming his covenant with Moses, or uh, Abraham, sorry, and uh, God tells Abraham to take animals and and to kill them and divide them. Uh, It's a a self-malediction oath. It was a common practice when making covenants. And in the ancient Near East, what would happen is uh, the weaker vessel would walk through those animal parts, and he would be signifying to the stronger party of the covenant, I will be faithful to you. And if I'm not faithful, let me be torn apart like these animals are. And so what you would expect is that Abraham would have to pass through the animals, pledging his faithfulness to God. But that's not what happened. God, Christ, as the smoldering pot, passes through the animal parts. God himself pledges his life to be faithful to us through Abraham. It's unbelievable. And in doing so, I don't think Abraham knew this, but we do. It's a prophetic signal. It's a statement that God himself would take on flesh and that his life would be sacrificed, torn apart to keep covenant with us. That's amazing. The God of the universe condescended to take on flesh. He has every right to demand obedience from us and then condemn us for our disobedience. But his love is so great and his glory so wonderful that he does what seems impossible. He takes the curse of sin on himself and he is crushed and killed for us. God has made covenant promises to us and he has placed, it says in Revelation 22, his name on our forehead He has applied the sign of the covenant to us. And now he has a claim on our life. Not just part of our life, the whole of our life. Covenants change how we think about ourselves. Or they should. Not long before I married Jennifer and made a covenant with her in marriage, I was hanging out with a friend. And I was driving home to my apartment. Uh, I decided to stop by the gym because I'm so into exercise and health. You know, the the clothes were in the back. The gym is open 24 hours. So I go. And I'm on some form of cardio equipment. It had to be midnight. 
I'm watching, I don't know, David Letterman or something on the TV. And I distinctly remember thinking, you know, I, I, don't, I can't do this once I'm married. Now, I'm not saying I can't hang out with a friend or that an occasional late night couldn't happen. But in that moment, I, I was a single guy living by myself. I can do what I want with my time and my money because it's mine. Once I get married, I can't do that, can I? Or I shouldn't. It's no longer my life, my time, my money. It's our money and our life together. We're still individuals, but the two lives have become one. And Jennifer is part of every decision and every relationship I have, whether she's directly involved or not, because we're married. I don't have a, a passcode to my phone that she doesn't know. In a similar way, uh, Paul in Ephesians 5 says that uh, uh, he, he's talking about marriage, and he quotes Genesis 2 where it says, A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul makes this amazing statement in Ephesians 5, 32. This mystery, the two becoming one, is profound. But I am speaking of Christ and the church. God designed marriage to reflect our relationship to Christ. We are one with him. And we said, I do, when we entered into the waters of baptism. We took his name upon us. And so everything changes. And everything we have and every moment we live belongs to him. 1 Peter 1, 18 and following, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish, for known before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in these last days for your sake. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We belong to Christ. We are married to Christ. Notice in our text, God doesn't just tell Abraham, circumcise yourself. He says, circumcise your children. Ishmael now and Isaac later when he has them. And he tells them, circumcise your servants as well. Everything within Abraham's household was marked off as belonging to God. Everything he was responsible for. The same is true for us. All that we have, all that we're responsible for, time, money, resources, relationship, it all belongs to God. God has laid a claim, a right to control everything in our life. We are simply entrusted to steward it for a season. Think about time. 
we tend to think this way. I, okay, I, I go to church, I serve, I go to small group, I go to Bible study, I do uh, daily devotions, that's all God's, but the rest of the day, that's all mine to do with what I want, right? No. It all belongs to him. And so God cares about how you spend your day and how you use your time. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days, O Lord, so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. That we may present to you a life that was lived in accordance to your will. We will give an account for our time one day. Now, most of life can seem inconsequential. But it's not to God, because God is using it all in our life. He uses every season, even the seasons of waiting and boredom, to grow and strengthen our faith. Abraham waited a lot. It was 25 years before he had his son. And the waiting was God's means to test, strengthen, and purify Abraham's faith. In Romans 4, we're told Abraham did not waver regarding the promises of God, but his faith grew strong as he glorified God. What is faith? Hebrews 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the confidence of things not seen. It doesn't take faith to hold on to what we have in this moment. It takes faith to believe what God said he's going to give. Perhaps you're waiting for a promotion, your big break. Maybe you're waiting for a spouse. It can be hard to wait. And God hasn't promised to give us all those things all the time. We can ask him for them, but then we have to trust him with the results. But the question is, what are we doing in this moment? How are we using the time that he has given us right now in the midst of waiting to grow and strengthen our faith in him? Are you rejoicing in God in spite of unpleasant circumstances? This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Regardless of circumstances. Rejoice in this day as a gift from God. Even if you're telling him, I don't like it, and I want my circumstances to change. That's okay. But still to rejoice in him who is Lord of that day. Maybe it's relationships. How do you think about them? We'll end with this. Is God the Lord of your relationships? You love your kids, but do you sometimes use them to try to appear as perfect parents to the world? Or live vicariously through your child's trophies and awards? Are you pushing your child in ways to be and to do all the things that you wish you had. They gotta be the greatest sports star or valedictorian. Pushing our kids to strive and to do their best and to reach their potential is not wrong. But are we encouraging them to seek first the kingdom? 
think about what Jesus said and just think about your own kids or those you love. Um, what does it profit if your child gained the whole world and he loses his soul? Do you see your friends maybe as pawns in a way to achieve your desires or to increase your popularity? Or do you love them as God loves you? There's all kinds of areas in our life that God wants to address and speak to. And he has every right because he owns us. We belong to him and we are to walk before him and be blameless. The question is, will we be humble and ask God to reveal those areas of life? Those resources, relationships, those things that we have that we tend to think belong to us when they really belong to him. Will you pray with me? Our Father, you love us more than we even love ourselves. And Sometimes that means that you must reveal to us those things that need to change, those areas of sin and selfishness that reside in our heart. Uh, Father, we ask that this morning you would do just that, that you would encourage us uh, to see every area of our life as a stewardship from you and that we would be willing to hear what it is you have to say to us in the ways that we uh, use and manage the things that you have allowed us to have. Uh, Father, help us to walk blameless before you this morning, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.